0: This is the Edge with Jonathan Von and Matt Eumanns on VSN, the Sports
4: Betting Network. Yo, what up, folks? Welcome to Ed. It's the Edge here on VCN, the Sports Betting Network. Got a new intro. Look good. Look good. We got a lot to get to today. A lot to get to. We are in the last thirty minutes of this program. Uh, we're gonna nerd out. Adam Burke is gonna be with us. That's not to call Adam uh, a nerd, but he's gonna be with us. Uh, our Very, very esteemed Major League Baseball analyst. We're going to talk a little bit about Major League Baseball for the last 30 minutes of the program. And not only just like some of the games we'll see today, but that's boring stuff, right? You know, game to game. What do you like here? What do you like here? Now we're going to talk some handicapping strategies, some advanced analytics, how you use a bunch of these numbers. Uh, It's why I actually wore my glasses today because I wanted to be nerdy uh, with Adam Burke. You know what I mean? So I wanted to fit in a little bit. So I wore the glasses today uh, to do just that. Um, We're also going to talk about this is the tease for the next, in 15 minutes from now. The worst bet you could possibly make. I think it might be the worst bet ever. Just put it out there like that. But Burke's going to be with us 30 minutes from now. You can follow him on Twitter at Skating Tripods. And also, check out all of his work during the daily newsletter. But we begin with the association because game one, Eastern Conference Finals, is set to go down later tonight. Miami Heat playing host to the Boston Celtics. Line right now, Heat minus two, total down to 2.03 and a half, a uh, very, very low total, obviously. And that's at multiple shops like the South Point, where we're sitting right now, the Westgate, BetMGM too. So you can see where the uh, market believes this is going to go. And it opened as high as 2.06 and a half. This thing's getting bet down um, like, it's a, uh, like it's a game seven. Like we kind of expect this thing to be a slog. And I'm not sure if that's the case, but we'll get to that. So where do we begin here? Well, first off, uh, I'll just put it out there. We're going to have it as part of best bets. But I did bet the Boston Celtics in this game. Catching two, and for very good reason. Um, first off, we'll start with the injuries. I think that's the most important thing here because Kyle Lowry is not going to play today. And I think on the surface, a lot of people will look at this and say, well, Kyle Lowry's not going to play. Who cares? Kyle Lowry hasn't been that effective in this postseason. Miami Heat, you could argue, maybe are better off without him. And I just don't really think that's the case. And where I start with the absence of Lowry is with Miami's offense, because without him on the floor, you do see a change. In the postseason, with Kyle Lowry on the floor, the Heat have averaged 100 points per 100 plays in half-court settings. But... When he's off the floor, the offensive rating in half-court settings plummets to 90.7. That's extremely poor. 90.7 is not a good offensive rating to have in any stretch. It's not really great to have in half-court settings either. And their transition offense, because we know that Kyle Lowry, think about his past and especially last few years um, with – the Toronto Raptors, and it's this right here, it's transition. And it's forcing turnovers. Getting out in transition has been the bread and butter for the Miami Heat, which we'll talk about more in depth. But with Kyle Lowry on the floor, offensive rating in transition, 112, 105.5 when he's off the floor. And those are both relatively poor marks regardless. But still, you can see in key facets – that this team is worse off offensively without Kyle Lowry. And it's looked really stagnant at times in terms of some of these half-court sets. But still, as you watch what makes them great, and this is a great play and a great example for those who are watching on vcin.com, what makes them great is that right there, forcing turnovers, getting out and running, and getting easy buckets. Even still, with a poor half-court rating in the postseason, the Miami Heat have averaged 115.5 points per 100 possessions overall in non garbage time minutes. Most of that damage has come on possessions like you were just watching. Transition. Transition off of steals. 65.4% of their steals have led to a transition play. They had 3.3 points per 100 possessions through transition off of steals as well. So it it becomes really easier when you're talking about generating good offense when you're forcing turnovers, getting out and running, and getting easy buckets. Because they're actually really not a great like rip-it-and-run team, as you kind of want to call it, in terms of grabbing rebounds, getting out in transition. Uh, Teams like the Toronto Raptors are much better at doing something like that. Not so much the Miami Heat, and the numbers really paint the picture of that. But If you look at this overall without Lowry and Butler commanding the offense has been brilliant, but if he's not commanding this offense at a really high level and you're not forcing turnovers at a high enough clip to offset the fact that you've been kind of a stagnant half-court offense against, by the way, one of the best half-court defenses in the NBA in the Boston Celtics, I wonder where this offense comes from for Miami, not only just without Lowry but in general, but especially in a game like this without Kyle Lowry. Because even for a team like Boston – they only had a turnover rate of 13.8% so far in this postseason. And while pressure has been shown to bother them a little bit, the Milwaukee Bucks did it to them uh, throughout that series, especially at the very beginning. This is still a Celtics team that doesn't turn the ball over to high clip and defensively has given up just 81.9 points per 100 plays in their series against the Bucks and 87.6 in the postseason overall. It's a really gifted Celtics defense. So that's where my first reservation comes here for Miami and you know the first check in the box of why I wanted to bet the Boston Celtics. The, the other interesting aspect of this in terms of the series and today is Boston offensively, and we've seen this shift, and you're seeing the highlights here from this the last game seven. Um, there is a common thread amongst all of these highlights, and it's that they're three-point shots. Boston shot over 50 attempts from beyond the arc in this, series, or excuse me, in this game seven against the Milwaukee Bucks. You have seen in the postseason their frequency of three-point attempts go from 39% in the regular season to 43%. In the postseason, they are willing to shoot threes. If they are tested, they have passed the test up to this point where teams are asking them, beat us from beyond the arc, and they have done just that and I think this is what is pretty interesting about this matchup as well because Heat opponents in the postseason have taken 42% of their attempts from deep, and in the regular season, they allowed the fourth most three-point attempts in the league, and that's not by a flaw. It's by design. You want to prioritize rim defense. You don't want to allow teams to get in the painted area of the floor. You defend without fouling. They've been brilliant, and they're also brilliant, unlike Milwaukee, in which you saw some of those highlights right there. Those were very much uncontested three-point shots. The Miami Heat are going to contest those looks. They're very great at closing out on shooters and contesting some of those shots are going to be out there. So the Celtics are going to have to make tough shots. This is a team that has taken more threes in the postseason while still maintaining a shooting percentage of 37% from beyond the arc. So against an opponent that's going to allow them to take three-point shots, it's going to test them a little bit more and allow them to do so. You can look at the past few series, the past two series, and this postseason – and see that the Celtics are perfectly comfortable playing that style of basketball if they are forced to. And I also wonder, does the luck, as I put it today in the, uh, the column, does luck kind of run out here for the Miami Heat? And, and by luck, you mean when you look at the first two series, opponents against Miami have shot only 33.8% on wide-open three-point attempts in the postseason. They've given up about 13 wide-open attempts per game. That's defenders six feet or farther away. 33.8% is a really poor rate on an uncontested three-point look. Don't think the Boston Celtics are going to be doing that because, well – They're actually a pretty good team in terms of shooting, uh, uncontested looks, shooting over 40% from three on uncontested three-point shots. So now I look at this as a whole, and I'm seeing that I get a Boston team that I think is very good, and numbers back it up, a very good half-court defense, taking on a team that's missing its lead point guard that has been very poor in those settings, is very reliant on turnovers to generate offense. The Celtics are a team that don't turn the ball over very much, and they're also a team that I think can kind of test the theory of let them shoot threes, as we saw in that series against the Milwaukee Bucks, and as we saw in that game seven. So, you know, brings me again to the side of the Boston Celtics. And I will, I do want to say too, because I've heard a lot of this already, which is, man, really big emotional win. Yeah, you got to come back a couple of days later and you got to play a game one. And I got to say, and I know Matt Brown has talked about this on primetime action when I've been on with them, with spots, right? What about this spot? What about that spot? This is a letdown spot. I'm of the opinion championships are on the line here, okay? Like, these guys want to win the NBA Finals. They want to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. These are very, very good teams. I don't think there is a letdown. Now, what's going to happen, as you will hear, is if the Celtics come out and lose this game and do not cover, it will be considered, well, it was a letdown spot. And I just don't think that's really the case. You're probably going to be able to look at the stats and look at the game and realize maybe not so much a letdown spot as Miami just outplayed them. But I do think that this Celtics team – For me, they're the highest power-rated team left in the NBA. I don't believe in these situations in terms of letdown spots, especially when you're talking about the postseason. I think those sometimes get a little overblown. This isn't the regular season, right? This is not Boston coming off of a double overtime game on a Wednesday night and then coming in that night into Miami. After you know, on a second leg of a back-to-back, whatever that you know, whatever weird situation you want to come up with that you see in the regular season, this is championship basketball now. At this point, these are two of the final four teams that are left in the NBA. So I can you can kind of miss me with the letdown spot personally when it comes to this. And, And by the way, too, I mean we also saw Memphis deliver in what could have been considered a letdown spot. Right? Remember they eliminate Minnesota. It was six games, so maybe that doesn't constitute for a letdown spot. But they eliminate Minnesota and then come back after a day off to go take on the Golden State Warriors and they end up covering that first game of that series, and we know how well they played overall in that series. So Boston plus two, and I should address as well, Marcus Smart injury. It looks like he is questionable to play with a uh, what they're calling, I think it's a foot injury or midfoot sprain is the technical term for it. Uh, the MRI, by some reports, did come back as negative, so it looks like there's going to be a positive um, It looks like it's somewhat positive, we'll put it that way, in terms of Marcus Smart's availability here. And as far as the Miami Heat are concerned outside of Lowry, I don't think there's anything to worry about here. But it's worth mentioning Caleb Martin, Max Drews, P.J. Tucker, Gabe Vincent, all are listed as questionable to play. But we also know that we're going to get Robert Williams pretty much without any restrictions, as Ima Udoka said, um, in media availability. I think it was yesterday. So overall... Give me Boston here. I think this is a situation where I think this is the best team left in the NBA. I think that they match up well with the Miami Heat, and I'm going to buy into my own theory that the Celtics are a good team and a little undervalued here. Yes, undervalued. I mean, think about it. This is a team that is eight and 8-3 against the spread in the postseason as well the Boston Celtics have actually been underpriced by the market despite this run to the Eastern conference finals. So I think there's a a lot of evidence here that would make you look at the Boston Celtics catching two points against the Miami heat. And as far as the total is concerned, I think we are at the point where I'm going to bet this over or nothing. And I think part of the thinking of the market here is that yes, right. Coming off of the game seven and coming back and only getting the few days off in between, right. They played what, uh, what was that Sunday? And then now you're playing again on Tuesday, like, Hey man, that's a really tough turnaround at the same time. That game was a blowout in which the closing minutes, you got guys like Grant Williams and we saw some of the uh, Peyton Pritchard highlights with him, you know, dicing guys up in isolation, hitting step back threes. It wasn't the most physically taxing game in the world either. So I think you have to keep that in mind. But I think this actually might be a little higher scoring than the market is giving it credit for. Uh, the Heat, as we said, can get out and run in transition off of steals. Jimmy Butler's still a very good offensive player in his own right in terms of isolation, we know because he's been the most efficient player outside of Giannis Antetokounmpo in this postseason. Actually, most efficient, um, better than Giannis in terms of efficiency. I think we might see a higher scoring game than the market's giving you credit for. But um, no solid edge that I have seen personally, and I'm not the best total guy anyway. Got to have a really big edge to play it one way or the other. So Celtics plus two. Hopefully get off to a 1-0 lead in this, excuse me, best of seven series. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Western Conference Finals and where we're at with that, uh, but also talked about maybe the the worst bet you can make in the world and a little on uh, the NBA draft.
1: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life...
2: This is the Edge on VSN, the sports betting network.
4: DeCent Spring Specials here. Only $59 are going to get everything VCN has to offer from now to the end of July. Next few months are going to be filled with the best betting content in the business right here at Beaston.com. Its subscribers are going to have access to all of it that include Adam, and it includes Adam Burke's daily Major League Baseball Best Bets. My best bets all the way through the NBA finals. Andy McNeil breaking down all the action on the ice all the way through the Stanley Cup playoffs. And lots of NFL preseason coverage as well. Not to mention continued best bets premium articles covering golf, UFC, USFL, and NASCAR. Hey, speaking of golf, PGA Championship coming up this weekend, and Matt Human's back just in time tomorrow to break it all down if you want the full visa experience which features a daily best bets email every edition of points for weekly use of our betting tools and live video stream check it all out 59 dollars to be a subscriber through july 31st slash spring is how you do it do you guys follow uh you guys follow matt on instagram do you guys have ig he's having a good time out in hawaii we'll just put it that way he's, he's having a good time out of hawaii uh it may or may not um Involve matching hats with the person that he uh, went out there with. Very cute. Very cute. Also, might be killed for saying this out in public, but you know what? He's not here. So he's not watching. No shot. We'll ask him about it tomorrow. Watch the denials just come in. Just like, no, no, no I don't know what to talk about. Uh, anyway, so let's talk about a couple of things. So NBA draft lottery is tonight, so that's going to be fun and exciting because we're starting to see – this is draft season now in the association, so you're starting to see more and more content when it comes to that. We're starting to see some odds shift, by the way, when it comes to uh, the first overall pick in the NBA draft. Right now, Jabari Smith's still holding on to that spot for being the first overall pick in the NBA draft, and that would, of course, be eh, about even money or so. Chit Holmgren behind him at plus 120, Powell Bencaro at plus 380. I was telling the guys behind the glass, I am willing to bet That by the time we get to the uh, selection of the first pick, that Chet Holmgren will go off as the favorite to be uh, the first selection in the NBA draft. Just reading between the lines and all, like every single bit of analysis you read, still Holmgren being the best guy out there in terms of a prospect. But the lottery is today... And what makes this kind of interesting, and I just wanted to bring this up. Mitch and I actually did this last summer uh, when I was filling in on follow the money. We did a little bit of a segment on this too. And I think it's a cool and fun exercise and it's worth pointing out. And it is somewhat of a PSA as I put up on social media today. Whatever you do, do not bet on who the team will be to draw as the number one overall pick because there are odds out there. And this is something which you should not do because you as a better are getting hosed on some of these odds. And I'll give you an example. And I think it's also a cool exercise as you kind of, you know, use this going forward as a handicapper too. So let's take a look at these if we could. So the Detroit Pistons, Houston Rockets, the Orlando Magic, they are the three teams that have the most likely odds to get the first overall selection. And for those who don't remember, the draft lottery is set up via odds. So when you look at it, there are actual odds for teams to pull the first overall pick Uh, for the three teams Pistons, Rockets, Magic, the actual odds via the lottery to get the first overall selection are 14% each. So why that matters is if you want to go over and bet the Pistons, Rockets, or Magic to get the first overall selection, you're getting plus 550. The problem with that is the implied probability of a price tag of plus 550 is actually 15.4%. So you as a better, if we're talking about like true odds here, you should be getting a little over six to one on the Pistons Rockets and Or Magic so you get the first overall pick as opposed to the plus 550 that you're getting Overall, right on the board. And it goes for every single one of these teams. You know, the Oklahoma City Thunder, six to one to get the first overall pick. That's an implied probability of 14.3%. The actual odds of them getting the first overall pick is 12.5%. So instead of six to one, you should be getting seven to one. You go further and further down the list, and that's the way it works. Even on these, some of these long shots, right? The long shots as well are where you really see some of the difference take hold and where you as a better can kind of see that. And you don't want to, I don't want to call it getting gypped because, like, I, you know, Do you deserve credit for hanging up odds like this? Or is it fun to at least throw these up there to a certain extent? Yes. It's also somewhat of a risk-free proposition for odds makers to put up something like this. When you're talking about, uh, as I calculated out, a 13% hold on an event, uh, which has fixed odds as we know of at this point. But look at some of the longer shots too. For example, the Washington wizards we will go there 26 to one to be the first overall selection to have the ping pong ball pulled for them to be number one overall at 26 to one. That's an implied probability of 3.7%. The actual odds of them getting that pick is 3%. And your initial thought would be like, well, that's not that big of a difference. But look at the difference of the price. 26 to one is what you're getting. When in reality, you should be getting more like 32% or that would be the true odds of the actual probability of this event happening. So this is always just kind of reminder. I mean, and you just go further and further down the list, the Cavaliers, hundred to one, to get the first overall selection. That'd be a lot of fun if you hit it, but the implied probability of that is 1%. In a reality, it's actually 0.5% chance that it's going to happen. And 0.5%, if you were to put that into a money line price, that's 199 to 1 as opposed to 100 to 1. So you as a better, you're not getting that much. Uh, you're not getting anything in terms of value in these, in these props. But why I also think this is worth talking about for just a couple of minutes is I, and there 's going to be a lot of people listening that know this already, but I think there 's also a lot of people who watch who when you talk about prices and when you talk about odds and when you look at like a baseball game and you see that the Cleveland Guardians today are minus one hundred and sixty five the only thing that goes off in your head is, okay, well i got to lay one sixty five to win a hundred like that 's the important part about everything that you 're looking at at a price like that. But these are also, as we know, probabilities when you look at these money line prices, so a one hundred sixty five price tag or minus one sixty five is a 62.3% implied probability, and it's just important, I think, to realize that when you look at all of these things uh, as a better. You know, I, as an example, I had a buddy who we were talking about a UFC fight, for example, Santos, and he told me that the, the fighter that he wanted to bet on was like minus one. You know, excuse me, it was a fight. The favorite was minus one fifty. And he bet on the favorite, and the favorite lost. And he told me, well, yeah, I bet on the favorite because I thought it was a 50-50 fight, so I'd rather go with the better guy. And I was like, well, no. Actually, in that instance, what you're doing is you're laying a price tag, you're laying 150, and you think it's a 50-50 fight, but your money's saying that you think it's a 60% chance that that guy's going to win. So, like, I think stuff like this is... is For people who are just kind of getting into this and who are really betting, and it's important again to look at this and realize, okay, I'm betting this amount to win this amount, I'm betting this amount to win this amount, but also to realize that these numbers carry probabilities with them. You know, I was I've listened to people who say, ah, this series price, you know, this should be this, and in reality, you're saying that that team, Team X, like I was uh, the Celtics and Nets series, and this might not be the best example because you know the Celtics ended up sweeping them, but still, uh, I, I think I can't remember who was talking about this. But essentially the person was making the case that the Celtics should be like a $3.50 favorite to win that series before it started as opposed to what they were before it began. And that's, that's a really big price tag. That's also saying that it's a 77.8% chance that the Celtics should win that thing. So I just I think it's a really cool exercise to look at this. And something like this, You know, if you want to throw a few shekels on it, I guess it's fun. But at the end of the day, uh, you are getting no value in any way whatsoever if you just want to bet on your favorite team to get the number one overall pick. The Lakers last example here, thirteen to one odds. If you want to bet on it to get the first overall pick, an applied probability of seven point one percent, when the actual probability for them is six percent, and the truer odds on that is a you know plus fifteen sixty seven. You can go further down the list. So, just my yearly reminder: don't bet on a team to get the first overall pick in the uh, NBA draft lottery. All right, really quickly, let's update what's going on in the Western Conference Finals from a series perspective um, and where we're at in this uh, this matchup between the Golden State Warriors and the Dallas Mavericks. So we're starting to see some support for Dallas. And I don't think that's really surprising. Warriors minus 225 now over at DraftKings to win this series. Plus 185 coming back on the Dallas Mavericks. This number has come from five and a half down to five. And there's a four and a half up there at the market. I think it's BetMGM. MGM. There's always a little off on the market. And you're paying juice if you want to lay it with the Golden State Warriors. And it's minus 105 if you want to take it with the Dallas Mavericks. And... From a series standpoint, uh, personally, since I've got a future on the Dallas Mavericks uh, to win the Western Conference at 14-1, to before this thing starts, I'm not going to do anything, but I do think the market is a little high on the Golden State Warriors. And it's partly because of the Warriors and the brand name and what we know about them, the championship core, Draymond Green, Steph, uh, Steph Curry, I almost called him Seth Curry, and Clay Thompson. But I think that we're not really understanding that this Dallas Mavericks team has been, again, kind of like the Boston Celtics. I think really Dallas and Boston mirror each other so much because there are two teams that turn things around defensively that have been among the statistical best in the NBA since the beginning of the calendar year and kind of continue to be a little undervalued in this recent stretch of success. I mentioned that the Celtics 8-3 and three against the spread in the postseason through the 11 games that they have played up to this point. You know, the Dallas Mavericks are 16-5 and five against the spread in their last 21 games dating back to the regular season. We saw the way that they ended against the Phoenix Suns, covering five out of the final six games, right? Or is it four out of the final six? Yeah, excuse me, four out of the final five games um, to ultimately win that series. This is a team that has been, I think, pretty undervalued by the betting market, and I think we're going to see that come to fruition here, especially in this first game. And the market, I think, is heading this direction. I wouldn't be surprised to see this close 4.5 by the time we get to tip off, maybe even a little bit shorter than that. Uh, But Dallas, when you look at the way that they can match up with Golden State, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Warriors uh, handle guys like Frank Nilakina. Reggie Bullock and, of course, Dorian Fitty smith on the defensive end of the floor because they were brilliant against Chris Paul. They were forcing turnovers at a really high clip. And as we know, the Golden State Warriors' 29th in offensive turnover rate it has been a really, really big issue for them. And there's also the question of who guards Luka, but I don't even know if that's the biggest deal in the world considering how often this dude will hunt for mismatches, go after guys like Steph Curry or Jordan Poole if they're out there on the floor. Hell, dude, we saw him backing down DeAndre Ayton. in in game seven of the Western Conference semifinal series against the Phoenix Suns. So as I said uh, on Sunday, Dallas Mavericks, the play against the Golden State Warriors in game one. And as we open the show with the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics in on Boston in the letdown spot in the Eastern Conference finals against Miami. And actually, they're starting to look at that. I got the worst of the number because there's a two and a half that just popped up on the screen right now that I noticed over at BetMGM. All right, we'll come back. Adam Burke's going to join us on the other side. Adam, I wore my glasses in solidarity so we can talk about baseball and numbers and nerd out as we talk about handicapping baseball, not just the boring stuff about who do you like tonight.
0: This is The Edge on VCN, the Sports Betting Network.
4: Answer the call cash with DraftKings Connect to Victory Challenge sponsored by Verizon. Play for free in this nine-part prediction pool series and take your shot at grabbing a share of $45,000 in total cash prizes. Head to DraftKings.com Verizon now to join the action. Verizon, America's most reliable 5G network. Terms and conditions and other eligibility restrictions apply to you. DraftKings.com for details. All right, no longer alone, and that's going to be – way it is as we move forward because adam or excuse me uh, i was gonna call you i was gonna say adam comes back tomorrow no matt humans comes back tomorrow from his trip in hawaii where there was plenty of pictures on instagram uh, not posted by matt
6: Eumanns. does he eat fast food when he goes to hawaii too
4: yes he does uh he has said before what's it called zippies is that the place that he brings up a lot yeah zippies i guess oh, i've eaten there once yeah is it good he swears by it like it's, it's his okay. i think it's his number one rated fast food place if i remember correctly um but that might be more about, like, nostalgia is not the right word. But, like, not you don't really get it that frequently. It's, I think it's more Hawaii-based. But it's up there. It's power rating. He loves it.
6: Huh. No, I mean, we got there. We went two years ago. And it was right after we landed in Maui and picked up the rental car. And we were starving because we had, I mean, you know, six hours. Plus, you had to wait and get screened, make sure your COVID test was
4: okay and yeah. all that stuff. So, we ate there. It was fine. I got to go. I, I forget a lot. I tell my wife that I forget that Hawaii's a state. Like I feel like there's so many loops like that you got to <laughs> jump through, not realizing that I can just buy a plane ticket and go. So maybe one day. Maybe one day. All right, so Adam is here because there's a lot I want to go over. So uh, I very much... Shocking to I, I, – that's why I put this in my bio. I enjoy other sports. I enjoy handicapping other sports, and I enjoy, you know, betting baseball. Uh, and I like betting baseball because there's, there's so many numbers to it, and there's so many things that you can dive into. So I wanted you here today to go through a lot of this stuff and also to kind of check my own process because I'd like to learn and, and get a little bit better as a handicapper. So kind of the way I'm going to approach this is kind of walking you through, like, the way that I do it and kind of learning from there, and you can critique, and we'll go from there. So So essentially – How I start any handicap for a game is with the pitchers. I think that's pretty obvious, right? You start with handicapping the pitchers. And when you open up one of my favorite sites, fan graphs, you can see a whole bunch of stuff for pitchers, but I've broken it down to the main categories, which are the classic ERA, uh, expected ERA, which is a new one, uh, FIP, fielding independent pitching, and expected fielding independent pitching. First question I have for you before we get to the advanced numbers is how irrelevant is ERA at this point for handicappers?
6: Yeah. You know, look, ERA is a very flawed statistic, right? There are a lot of things that come into play with an ERA that, you know, aren't really necessarily in a pitcher's control. You know, for example, the defense. is If the defense is bad behind a pitcher, he's probably going to have a high ERA. doesn't matter what he does. It's just that balls in play are going to fall. They're going to find holes. Fielders aren't going to make plays, so on and so forth. So, you know, ERA is also dependent on context, right? So if you give up a hit with nobody on base, it doesn't really matter. If you give up a hit with two guys in scoring position, it really matters. So ERA doesn't really take into account defense, doesn't take into account luck, doesn't take into account timing. With that being said, if you've got a really bad ERA, it's more than just bad luck. It's probably bad pitching too. But a lot of times you'll see guys with low ERAs that have gotten very, very lucky. In a lot of ways. Yep. And as that, those are areas where I typically look for pitchers to regress. And you know, I like to fade a lot of those guys that have really low ERAs,
4: but a lot of their other peripheral stats don't look as good. So, and for me, the, one of the processes that I would use is so, it, like, ERA is relevant to the point where I'll look at the ERA, kind of what you're talking about, high or low, and see what the delta, the difference is between my original process was expected fielding independent or XFIP. So, for those who are watching, and you guys did this on Runline, by the way, the first episode was awesome, mm. defining a lot of these stats. For people who don't know, definitions for both fielding independent and expected fielding independent FIP or fielding independent pitching measures what a player's ERA would look like over a given period of time if the pitcher would have experienced league average results on balls in play and league average timing. These definitions are courtesy of fan graphs. Now expected fielding independent, if we could throw that up there, and that's one I used to use, but we're going to get to why not maybe in in a moment, but expected fielding independent, a little difference. A regressed version of FIP, calculated the same way, except it replaces a pitcher's home run total with an estimate of how many home runs they should have allowed, given the number of fly balls they surrendered, while assuming a league average home run to fly ball percentage. That last bit is important for expected fielding independent, as you and I were texting a couple of days ago, that could get kind of noisy, right? Right, absolutely. And and just to clarify, the
6: four components of FIP are strikeouts, walks, home runs, and hit by pitches. Mm. So the idea behind FIP is that it's things a pitcher can control. You throw a really bad pitch, it gets hit out of the ballpark. That's your problem. You know, that had nothing to do with the defense. You can't field a ball that goes over the fence, right? Strikeouts, walks, same thing, same thing with hit by pitches. So that's where FIP comes in. It's sort of more of an indicator of a pitcher's true talent level in a lot of ways. The thing about XFIP, as you mentioned, it assumes a league average home run to fly ball percentage. Now, some guys just simply won't have that. An extreme ground ball guy is going to have a high home run to fly ball percentage because he doesn't induce a lot of fly balls. On the flip side, a guy with a high fly ball percentage, like take a Justin Verlander, for example, a lot of fly balls, right? He'll give up home runs, but because he has a large sample size of fly balls, his home run to fly ball percentage is typically going to be a little bit lower. So it it can be useful, but you have to apply the right level of context where ground ball guys – they won't have a league average home run to fly ball percentage because their fly ball percentage is so low. So you have to apply different layers of context to that. And if you're able to do that, the stat still has relevancy. You just have to be willing to take it another step or two.
4: Okay, so – for the first step when looking at this, as I mentioned, ERA to looking at the differences and all that stuff. And I have an example for you, and it's one that I actually asked you about before, you, before we came on the air here. Uh, my eyes immediately went to Overton today, who's pitching for Cincinnati. Uh, if you look at it first glance, Buck 59 ERA, looks like a guy who's worth backing. If you give like a peripheral glance, like, hey, man, he's the Reds' best dude. And in fact, we're going to talk about another Reds pitcher who might be their best dude who has a terrible ERA. Um, but he looks like a guy that's worth backing. But if you look at some of the other numbers, fielding independent, almost two runs higher at 322, expected ERA, which I wanted to ask you about, but we'll get to that in a moment, 495. And then you look at context because you want, right? You've said that context, look for context. Then you realize that, well, he's got pretty lucky on balls in play, 250. League average is what, 300? About there. League average this year for betting
6: or balls and plays about two eighty-three, okay. but it's usually in the two nineties. Okay. Which is something else we can elaborate on.
4: And it's led to a low whip despite an average rate of walks or below average rate of walks, 9.7 walk rate for over 10, 3, 18 walks per nine. And I was like, well, playing against him might be a spot because he might be a little overvalued by the betting market. And you get police hack on the other side, and he stinks. Like his numbers across the board are, are awful. And then lo and behold, what happens? Cleveland up from a dollar fifty open to a dollar sixty five, and the total's up as well.
6: Right. So one of the things about looking at ERA and FIP or ERA and XFIP and even ERA and expected ERA, if you just look at ERA and you compare it to those three other metrics, you can interpret and anticipate a lot of line moves that are coming. If you see a guy with a low ERA and then his XERA, his FIP, and his XFIP are all higher and significantly higher at that, like Overton's are, you can expect a line move against that guy. On the flip side, if he's got a high ERA with a lower XERA, lower FIP, lower XFIP than his ERA – then you're probably going to see money come in on that guy. So it's a very easy, very quick indicator to try and find some line value out there in the marketplace and get out in front of a number.
4: And so that's that was kind of kind of be my next question, which is look, I'm, I'm nowhere near like the day-to-day baseball handicapper like you and others are like, This is easily for me, as somebody who likes analytics, to punch up fan graphs, find these numbers, realize that Overton's probably going to get played against here today. Market moves in that direction. Like, has the market not accounted enough for stuff like this when it comes to these lines? Because you're right. Like, it's seemingly every time you find a situation like this, the line will move in that direction.
6: Right. Yeah. And and this is something that probably started, I would say, maybe six to seven years ago, where you would see what I call the ERA and FIP line move, which is, you know, the low ERA, high FIP, high ERA, low FIP. That started happening maybe six, seven years ago. So I had to pivot. I had to adjust, kind of find different ways, different stats to dig into the market with. But it is something that takes place almost regularly across the board from influential bettors that bet overnight. Basically, the modeling crowd, the people that have spreadsheets and interpret data like what we're talking about. Those are people that are going to look at a guy like Overton and say, he cannot continue with a 159 ERA. It's not going to happen. Now, the degree of regression is what we're all worried about here, where It could happen in the sense that he gives up eight runs today in two innings. Then all of a sudden his ERA goes from 159 to probably Mm five-something. It could be more gradual, where he just doesn't pitch well for four, five, six starts in a row. So we hope for the latter, because we can keep fading that guy. But sometimes it is something that happens rather immediately, but it is something that's going to happen. So a lot of bettors are just going to keep betting on it over
4: and over and over again until it really does. So with the expected ERA, because this is a somewhat new one for me, uh, how do you balance the difference between that and fielding independent? Because, like a guy like Overton's a really good example, and we're going to talk about one later too. But 322 fielding independent and a 495 xera is a very big difference. It's a huge difference, and and one of the things that xera incorporates is a few
6: years ago, Statcast data became mm-hmm. publicly available. StackCast era began in 2015, but that's where you get stuff like exit velocity, where you get hard hit percentage, barrel rate. A lot of these things that. You know, actually have kind of forced me to believe a little bit more in ERA, just because we can see the contact quality of pitchers giving up. Yeah. If he's giving up a lot of hard hit contact, that's why his ERA is high. So XERA actually in actually um, uses in the formula things like hard hit rate, things like barrel percentage. So you look at Overton, his his XERA is about three runs higher than his regular ERA. Fifty two percent of batted balls against him have been hit at least ninety five miles per hour off the bat. Now, the average batting average is 464 on a batted ball of 95-plus miles per hour. So the idea here would be he's allowing a lot of hard contact, that's going to catch up with him sooner rather than later. So that's why his xERA is so much higher and why we saw that line move against him today, even though Plesak has not pitched well at all. Yep.
4: All right, cool. I like it. All right, we're going to come back. Adam's sticking around for the, the whole final 30 minutes here. So when we come back, Adam, we're going to throw a couple of pitchers at you. I think some pitchers that look like maybe worth playing on in the future, expecting some positive regression, vice versa. And also, if we had time, diving into the rookie of the year race too because there's some interesting numbers for some of these guys, specifically the hitters, where you're looking at them and going, all right, well, a guy like Spencer Tolkison, for example, he got off to a slow start. Is there any hope for him? I would say no when I looked at some of the numbers, but we'll talk about that in a little bit more with you on the other side. And uh, don't forget, check out Adam's write-ups every single day. Adam, what's your title? Are you like senior MLB analyst? I don't know. Okay. I don't even know. I still don't have a title. Adam I got <laughs> hired without a title. <laughs> well, go to Visa.com slash major league baseball. You'll find all the write-ups there. We'll come back.
1: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
2: From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday... Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Edge
0: on VCN, the sports betting network.
4: You ready for a fresh start, a real fresh start with lasting change? Take the Zen 10 Challenge, switch up the way that you've been enjoying nicotine. Available in a variety of tastes and strengths, Zen Nicotine Pouches deliver smoke-free and spit-free nicotine satisfaction. Try Zen Nicotine Pouches for 10 days, your money back. Fresh start is here. Take the Zen 10 Challenge today at ZYN.com slash 10. Zen Nicotine Pouches, only for adults 21 or older who currently use tobacco or nicotine. Warning, product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. All right, really quickly before we get back to uh, the, uh, the baseball stuff with one Adam Burke who's with us here at the desk. Uh, went over these earlier just to uh, put them out officially for everybody as we were talking about them. The best bets in the association uh, in the column today, of course, Celtics plus two for tomorrow. As uh, spoken about on Sunday, Mavericks plus five and a half. So two plays in the uh, conference finals. I'm going to go against Adam, the letdown spot for the Boston Celtics today. I don't know how you feel about those things, but I kind of poo-poo them, especially when it comes to the postseason. I feel like the Celtics would be ready to play in the Eastern Conference Finals.
6: You know, I just filled in on an odds-on for Amal Shaw with Mike Palm, and we were talking about this. Like, the Celtics are far and away favored to win the series, and they're a dog in game one. Yeah. It feels like it's just kind of over-accounted for, this idea that just because they played seven games that, you know, they're going to have a letdown today.
4: Right. Well, and also, I mean, the seventh game was kind of a snoozer. It was a blowout. (laughs) So I don't know if they're really taxed.
6: That was the interesting thing was that the Celtics won every, just about all
4: their games were in blowout fashion.
6: And the Bucs won two close games. Yep.
4: Oh, I mean, like I wrote about it before that game seven. If you looked at like the net numbers and all this, uh, the Celtics have been the better team. Mm -hmm. And the same had been said for the Dallas Mavericks. Like the last four games, like they had clearly been the better team. And then you saw it all come to fruition in the final (laughs) two games for those, uh, for those two series. So very much looking forward to tonight. All right. Let's get back because we don't have a lot of time. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some undervalued pitchers first off, and then if we have time, we'll get to uh, the rookie of the year candidates. So first on the list. So again, kind of using the exercise I'm talking about. Looking for the first step. It's not the only step. The first step is looking at that ERA, finding that it's inflated, and some of the underlying numbers, and whether or not there's some differences here. For the use of this exercise and the fact that we talked about expected fielding independent, the potential noise, I've excluded XFIP. Uh, as a statistic to look at here, so let's start with Tyler Molly of the Cincinnati Reds, a 5.89 ERA, but his expected ERA 3.57, fielding independent at 3.46. If you look across the board here, the, the thing that I think has been a problem for him, the walks have been an issue, walking nearly five and a half guys or four and a half guys, excuse me, every nine innings. But the batting average on balls in play is a little high. He's not giving up a ton of home runs either, so you kind of like that. If you look across the board, the hard hit rate is actually solid, 36.2%. Like Those are the indicators on top of this difference here that I've got a guy like Molly Circle. I don't know, and that's the difference I wanted to ask you. The Reds are bad. So, like, right. do you want to bet on Molly or do you bet on like opposing team totals under when he's starting? Things like that. Like, how do you approach something like that where you have an undervalued pitcher but on an extremely bad team?
6: Right. I think with a guy like Molly, it's it's really on a case by case basis. Also, 56.2% left on base percentage is one of the lowest among qualified starters in baseball. Left on base percentage is a really big indicator in terms of the big ERA and FIP discrepancies that we're talking about. If you've got a low left on base percentage, your ERA is going to be high because you're giving up those hits at inopportune times. And for Molly, I mean he gave up seven runs against the Dodgers in three and two thirds. It's the Dodgers, right? Like the Dodgers are going to hit a lot of guys. So I think it's really important too. When you look at these guys where they have these big gaps between ERA and FIP, go see who they have faced. Like we just talked about Connor Overton. He pitched at Coors Field and actually pitched pretty well. So good for him. But then his other two starts were against the Pirates. So now he faces a Guardians team that are not super high on their offensive profile. They do lead the league in batting average, which they make a lot of contact, so they should. But those are things you want to look at, too, see who these guys have faced. And for Molly, as some of this positive aggression's kind of hit, his last two starts are against the Pirates. He's also a guy with big home-road splits where he's been very good on the road, not good at home. And Great American Ballpark is a tough pitcher's park. So for Molly, I would look at it and say, I'm going to bet for his positive aggression to come on the road, against average or below average offensive teams. So I have a profile now. If he winds up in one of those spots, I'll go ahead and bet on him. You know, Just because I try to formulate these profiles, and they're ever-changing, but mm-hmm. I try to formulate them throughout
4: the course of the season. So another guy that I think this is a good example of, because we're still at the point where these sample sizes are pretty small. Like Some of these guys are starting like five games maybe at this point that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eflin is one of those. He's only made five starts, pitched 24 innings. Uh, 450 ERA is pretty high. But it does seem to stem from two starts, right? I think it was – I got this in front of me right here. He gave up four earned runs – excuse me, five earned runs against uh, the Mets. That was his last time out. And then four in a start against Colorado, and that was at Coors. So so that can kind of be a problem. But you look at some of the underlying numbers – He's a guy that you kind of want to back here. Less than two walks every nine innings. Gives up nothing in terms of home runs, essentially. A little above average in terms of, uh, uh, I guess you call it below average. I'm batting average on balls in play. 325. He's getting a little unlucky there. Not giving up any hard contact whatsoever. Eflin, to me, is totally a dude that I've got circled to back going forward.
6: Right, and and here's the thing. A couple things about Eflin that would concern me. The first is he hasn't pitched in 16 days. He will pitch today. He had COVID. So you want to make sure that he kind of gets back into rhythm a little bit. The second thing is... Babbitt is generally pretty dependent on contact quality, but also he pitches for a really bad defensive team. Yeah, I was
4: going to ask you about that. Okay, So
6: when you look at the Phillies here, his last three seasons, a 344 batting average on balls in play in 2020, 327 in 2021, 325 here so far this year, while his hard hit percentage has been average or better in those three seasons, he's just on a bad defensive team. So that's a stat that may not regress as quickly as you would hope, but he also doesn't walk a lot of guys. So, you know, Should strand some more runners, stuff like that. So it's kind of a give and take with a guy like Affleck. And with Harper injured too, right, in playing more DH. I mean, that's going to make their defense only worse, is it not? Yeah, I mean they they have a lot of issues. They, they have issues on the left side of the infield. They have issues in the outfield. It's just the way it kind of goes. And, and also too, some of these guys wind up with a little bit higher of an ERA because inherited runners score, and the yep. Phillies do have a bad bullpen as well.
4: Yep. All right. So let's go from there to two more really quickly, and then we'll get to the maybe overvalued guys, uh, Freddie Peralta and Alex Cobb. Both both made my list. I'm fascinated by Alex Cobb. You know, I got to watch him up close. You know, he when he was with the Angels, and you look at him and he's got good stuff. And even at 398, the ERA, you'd think, well, that's pretty good. The underlying numbers are incredible for him. Like, you're talking about a guy where, on a good team like the San Francisco Giants, maybe they should be laying a little bit like higher prices because he is like 142 expected ERA, 217 fielding independent. That's elite stuff.
6: Yeah, no, absolutely. Not not only Alex Cobb, but also Logan Webb with the Giants, who I think he should be better than he's been so far this year. Giants have had some defensive issues. They've had some COVID problems. They've kind of had some guys in and out a little bit. That's kind of been a contributing factor. But yeah, Cobb, I think, is a play on guy. Absolutely. I think Logan Webb is a play on guy as well. But you, know, you do want to look for these indicators on teams that are generally pretty good, you know, because those are teams that not only can you trust, even if the regression doesn't happen for the starter, even if you don't get the positive regression, it's still a good offensive team with a good bullpen. So I'm, I'm definitely more comfortable with spots like that as opposed to something like an Eflin, especially a Freddie Peralta, right? I yeah. mean, if, if Devin Williams and Josh Hader are ready and available. That's one of the best one-two punches at the back end of the bullpen. If Peralta gives you six innings, you're in pretty good shape there. So, guys like Peralta, Cobb, Webb, those types, I think are all you know guys that you can back with some level of confidence.
4: And Cobb was a was an underrated guy last year. And This is another year. Last year, he actually had a sub three to FIP as well uh for the Anaheim Angels and again uh, he is doing a good job so I right. like how Three,
6: 365 BABIP yep and uh 50 what is it 52.6% left on base percentage again BABIP and left on base percentage will dictate ERA so if those are extremes if they're extreme outliers that should come back to a more normal range those are almost always going to be pitchers that you want to try and back.
4: So now, and we were talking about this off the air, and I've had this before with Dakota Hudson, but uh, he leads the way for our potentially overvalued pitchers. And Hudson's on a respected team in the Cardinals, so I think out of all of these guys, you might have find the most present, you know, the most lucrative opportunity in going against a guy like Hudson. But a three out six ERA, but those numbers, man, expected ERA of five thirty six, a, a fielding independent of five oh five. And when you look across the board, I mean, one of the other things too, when you look at like guys in terms of how good they can be or some of the issues that are going to arise. If you're walking five guys every nine innings, or excuse me, four guys every nine innings, only striking out five, that's going to be a pretty big problem for you. It's exactly what Hudson's had every single time. It is issues with command, but getting lucky in terms of balls in play. Defensively, the Cardinals have been a better team in the past, so it kind of helps them out. This guy's got to be one of those dudes that you're looking at. I'm like, all right, come on. Like, this has got to give at some point.
6: Yeah, and it's really frustrating, too, because I I thought that in 2019 when he had a 335 ERA and a 493 (laughs) FIP over the course of an entire season. You know, I mean, he's a guy that just. He fits a negative regression profile, and for some reason it never happens to him. With that being said, this could be the year. Last year, he only threw eight and two-thirds. He was mostly hurt. Only threw 39 innings in 2020. He's already thrown 35 and a third so far. So he's a guy that shows negative regression signs, but also I think as his workload increases, I worry about his effectiveness. I worry about his command. I worry about his ability to stay healthy and pitch healthy. This may be the year where Dakota Hudson the bottom kind of falls out. The problem, of course, again, is you have to apply context, right? The Cardinals are a very, very good defensive team. An exceptional defensive infield with Nolan Arenado at third base. So, for Hudson, it may not happen as quickly as it should but I'm certainly hoping it does because I agree that he's definitely got to isolate who is definitely overperforming to this point in the season
4: all right now we have a lot man we only have 60 seconds really quickly Sandy Alcantara how do you hand a guy like this who's got an elite ERA a very good expected ERA but is fielding independent picks another picture of 407
6: context right again I keep harping on that but his home park is terrible for hitting. Yeah. It's a very, very good pitcher's park. So if you're going to look to fade him, and I think that there will be opportunities to do so, you do it on the road as opposed to at home where you know the home runs won't necessarily get to him. Same thing with a guy like Cole Irvin, who we had on the screen as an overvalued yeah. guy, although he's now hurt, I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, Another guy where his home park is just really friendly. Michael Pineda just broke his hand on a comebacker, so you don't have to worry necessarily about him, but park factor, defense, all these different types of things come into the equation. But again, Look for those ERA and FIP discrepancies because you will see line moves in the marketplace and you can get out in front of some numbers.
4: Well, I had a whole bunch of things for uh, a Rookie of the Year, but uh, we don't have enough time for it. Thanks for coming in, man. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Adam Burke, skating tripods up on Twitter, right? That's skating tripods. And the awesome. newsletter every day. beaston.com slash Major League Baseballs. We're actually slash MLB. My Guys in the Desert coming up next. beaston.com slash podcast where you want to go if you missed out on any part of your favorite show. We'll see you tomorrow with Humans back at the desk.
0: Playing dirty, sports scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith